Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, and it's all brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. Wanted to talk uh, this week about something that started around, I'm gonna say around like the mid 90s. And I've talked about this before in, in previous podcasts. And it's, it's something about the horror genre. We have Women in Horror Month this month. I'm writing a piece right now, an ongoing series for Dread Central on how horror has personally uh, affected me since a child all the way up through influencing my career. And one of the things that I'd like to touch upon is something I call designer horror. And it's, it's when horror stops becoming really made to be scary and more as a kind of slick package. And uh, I'm, I'm going to prove my point here, so just bear with me. I mean, like somewhere in the, in the 80s, I guess someone got the idea that horror should be less frightening and, and more sexy and trendy. And, and I'm not sure where it happened, but, but a good starting point might be Michael Jackson's Thriller. I was in high school when that came out. And the world premiere video back when MTV aired videos, if you remember a time like that, before its implosion was the thing to see. I mean, these world premiere videos, I mean, it was a big deal. Like, oh, they're going to premiere this video tonight. And the, and the big one was John Landis's Thriller because Michael Jackson at that time had the biggest album on the planet. And, and Landis was in between the smash horror hit classic American Werewolf in London and his public relations nightmare of, of Twilight Zone, the movie. And if you're not familiar with that, uh, Vic Morrow, the actor Vic Morrow, who was Jennifer Jason Lee's father, was killed on set uh, along with two small children uh, shooting a scene for uh, the Twilight Zone, the movie in which a lot of safety protocols were violated and, and it went on for years. It was, I think, an almost 10 year uh, civil suit against Landis and not sure if there were criminal charges brought up, but there was there was a lot of stuff that went on there. Michael Jackson was was truly the king of pop at this time in his LP Thriller. If you remember, elevated MTV. Really, it gave MTV its its blood and and gave it MTV the chance to really grow. It was a pop culture event, and it used horror as its springboard. I mean, Vincent Price became known to a Pepsi generation as the old dude who rapped in Thriller, and and that's his laugh at the end. I mean, a lot of kids, even my age, were like. Who is this guy? It's like, you got to be kidding me. It's Vincent Price. I grew up with this guy. And a lot of them were acting like they've just discovered Vincent Price for the very first time. Academy Award winner and makeup genius Rick Baker did the makeup effects and suddenly horror had arrived. It was cool to like horror. I mean, I had only spent how many years in school loving horror, but now suddenly it was sleek and chic and cool. It was stylish and it was commercial. Think about this. Remember at the end of Thriller, I mean, does Jackson turn into a werewolf or is he some kind of like cat people kind of cat panther person? I, I don't know. What I do know is that it was horror tame enough to be mimicked at weddings. How many of you have gone to a wedding where the bride and groom and the wedding party 
all have to dance to Thriller. In fact, I think there is even, or there are several YouTube compilations of this that, well, you know where horror is gone when it becomes the stuff of a wedding and it's playing right alongside uh, Give Me That Old Time Rock and Roll from Bob Seger and The Electric Slide. So we kind of go from the early 80s, maybe around 83 peak, 84 peak with Friday the 13th, the final chapter. We go from slasher to sexy. I mean, we saw this in the evolution of the Friday the 13th franchise. I mean, what started as a a nice Halloween ripoff moved into a self-aware, glossy franchise right around the time of the 3D installment, which was pretty much in line with the rise of MTV and the debut of Thriller and hitting its stride with the final chapter in 1984. Friday had a formula and it glossed up to incorporate an Alice Cooper song by the time part six rolled around and a subsequent MTV video that also got its own world premiere. And and while horror has always been subject to incredible cynical marketing and exploitation, something new was going on by the close of the 80s. Another golden era for horror the 80s were. Horror was almost being neutered or, or tamed. It wanted to retain its R rating but it also didn't want to alienate that lucrative preteen and early teen demographic, you know, the tweens. Horror was getting sexy cool. By the start of the 1990s, horror was getting into a, a higher studio profile and with designer product, designer names should be attached. The rise in popularity of the teen horror novelist R.L. Stein correlated with the mass production and confection of the horror genre. Suddenly you're peddling horror to the middle school crowd. And while I guess that was always there if you go back, well, wait a minute, what about weird tales and tales from the crypt and the comic books and all that stuff? Yeah, I guess. But that was even very edgy horror. I'm talking about a lot of this stuff wasn't really edgy horror. It was like 90210 with maybe some heavier sex scenes and and more violence maybe but it wasn't the same as as the 1930s and 40s and 50s pulp magazines and and that kind of horror it's it's a different thing was horror ever meant to be spoon-fed to teenagers was the genre asking for pg-13 ratings and sexed up bloody or scooby-doo type films the, the sexy, shallow teenager that served as a prop for the 80s horror was now starring and taking over the lead in horror, often driving the villain into the background. I mean, think about, you know, I know what you did last summer. It, it, the villain, who can really remember the villain or even the villain's name? It was Jennifer Love Hewitt. It was, you know, Freddie Prinze. It was this teenage pop group that was attracting these middle school kids right to the theater. Horror was becoming goosebumps with some tits, ass, and gore. And not even heavy, hardcore tits, ass, and gore. It was just enough to keep that PG or very tepid R rating. And we would see this evolve or maybe devolve into the Twilight series. However, we saw MTV's huge influence on a previous vampire film, The Lost Boys, which earns a free nostalgia pass from fans who, in the wake of damage wrought by Twilight, long for nastier, more masculine vampires. The Lost Boys embraced MTV, if you remember, with a driving pop soundtrack, music video stylistic cuts, and a plot that basically went against the established vampire lore, ending with a totally contrived ending that exists only to fool a duped audience. I still say it, 
and I know this is you know what they call one of those unpopular horror opinions, but The Lost Boys is really nothing more than an almost two-hour vampire music video. I find the film completely overrated. It can be fun, I guess, but I remembered seeing it in the theater and going, this is nothing more than MTV. The film was directed by the Flash and Dash maven Joel Schumacher, and he'll go on to be the man who killed the Batman franchise with his two style over substance entries in that Tim Burton series. I mean, Batman and Robin so exemplified hollow, soulless filmmaking that it literally killed that franchise and still has George Clooney apologizing for it. Batman and Robin is the Jaws the Revenge of comic book movies. But back to horror, I mean, The Lost Boys followed on the success of Thriller, bringing vapid coolness to the horror genre. The beloved vampire film is a solid summation of 80s excess, loud, shallow, and yet looks absolutely beautiful. It hopped onto the newly resurrected vampire craze born from Tom Holland's superior Fright Night and led us right to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the herpes of vampire films Twilight. The Lost Boys is led by an androgynous male cast slathered in music, video glitter, and flash fast edits and encased in a pie crust thin script. However, it worked. Teenagers ate it up and it made money, a lot of it, and move horror into safer, more commercial climbs. The 1990s brought this designer horror to its next phase with the rise of the designer horror writer. While R.L. Stein found the algorithm to package death, murder, and mild sex into best-selling horror books picked up by the middle school scholastic book club crowd, remember that? Feature films got Kevin Williamson. Rising out of the angst-dripping Dawson's Creek TV series, Williamson was horror's Joss Whedon prototype. His breakout script, originally titled Scary Movie, ah, the irony, became Wes Craven's Scream and Williamson found himself as the go-to guy for 90s horror. And for a while there, his name on a horror film was like Jordash was to Jeans. Now, my, one of my favorite old, early 2000s movie reviewers, Mr. Cranky, he used to have uh, Mr. Cranky film reviews. He said this about Kevin Williams. He said, I'm just a little bit chafed that every horror film launched from Hollywood these days has Kevin Williams' name attached to it like a remora. That would be just peachy if Kevin weren't to horror films what Jim Varney is to comedy. And he was referring to Ernest and the Ernest films. So he's comparing Kevin Williamson to Jim Varney's Ernest. Williamson, however, had a formula and it was potent. Build scripts around perfect, beautiful teenagers dripping with angst, self-absorption, and overprivilege, and stick them in harrowing situations. While Scream is easily his best work, it also had the deft hand of the late Wes Craven to guide it through. However, Williamson almost single-handedly cemented a new sub-genre, the pretty teen in peril horror movie, or, like I call it, the designer horror movie. The formula of this designer horror or this pretty teen in peril horror movie formula, well, it works something like this. Number one, get beautiful up and coming teen to early 20 stars. They're usually annoying and grating, but they look good. Out of a bunch, several will become standouts. I'm talking to you, Josh Hartnett, Jay Love, Sarah Michelle Gellar, or Freddie Prinze Jr. Number two, 
build off previous successes of the established franchises, slashers, Halloween, vampires, and then inject, and I put in quotes, dark humor. Number three, have your script filmed with slick production value, rapid fire editing, and shots of beautiful people pouting, smoldering, yelling, and crying. Number four, do your best to avoid the PG-13 rating. Market it to the R.L. Stein crowd. Put in blood, violence, give them some sex, but never go too far over the top to invoke darker previous horror. This is designer horror. It's fun horror. And most of all, general audience horror. With a few nips and tucks, it can play basic cable or network television. And number five, keep it basic. Don't make that audience think too much. Make sure the script contains plenty of one-liners for the trailer to appeal to the teen crowd. And then, when you go to make your poster, make sure you have a Photoshop poster of beautiful heads, the heads of all those beautiful, attractive stars all floating on black space, staring off out just outside the camera, perhaps maybe even breaking that fourth wall. I know what you did last summer's poster sums up this new form of the horror genre. Google it and look at I know what you did last summer with the floating heads. The floating heads poster art is a thing all its own. The menace takes a back seat to those beautiful bodies and faces of those stars to attract the teen audiences. Funny, it looks pretty much like the packaging of uh, the poster for Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer or Halloween H2O. You get my point. Perhaps we could throw in the faculty and we can keep going. The pubescent boys go for the hot chicks and their dates dream over those pretty boys who will invariably try to save their girls from the growing peril. Horror was placed under Jennifer Love Hewitt's breasts, and it's all packaged under the designal title of From the Creator of Scream. That's right, another teen name brand you all bought into. Now buy this. The public did, and two more sequels followed Scream without Williamson attached. The poster for Scream 2 looks, well, kind of looks like the first one. And, well, it's a brand name, right? Designer stars, designer names, floating heads, designer horror. So give us the same but different. Halloween went designer for its 20th anniversary in 1998. Take a look at the poster. Seem familiar? Designer names, designer faces, designer horror. Michael Myers was pretty worn down by 1998. He got a facelift with Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, she returned, you remember, to the role of Laurie Strode that made her a star. And face it, Curtis did not need to be in another Halloween film. In fact, it could look like a major step backwards. However, Screams Williamson was the writer, and it had all the feel of a designer piece. So we got the designer name face attached put several pretty 20-somethings pretending to be teenagers in orbit around Jamie Lee and throw in a hip rapper to bait the teen hook well. Then, wait for the fish to bite. And they bit. The film was a massive success, proving Williamson's style over substance could at least keep up with John Carpenter's terror and suspense. Even Michael Myers' mask seemed off. Too clean, too designer like he bought it from some high-end boutique instead of a seedy Halloween or hardware store. We don't want to creep out the middle school crowd too much. 
There's some sex, but not too graphic. There's some blood and violence for the boys and the oh yeah factor. And there's some angst, misunderstood teen plot as well. I mean, Jamie has a son and he's misunderstood and you know, there's a disconnect between mother and son. I, I mean, Hartnett plays Curtis's son who knows fully well what happened to her as a teenager that one Halloween night in Haddonfield 20 years earlier, but he is so self-absorbed he pays her lip service, telling her basically to get over it. He's lucky he was even born. As if I were Curtis, I would have gone into hiding somewhere very remote and having a kid would have been the last thing on my list. This isn't about horror. This is about building a brand and keeping it perpetuated. A central factor of cinema is not making the best picture you could when you have the means to do so. With a budget over 10 times what Carpenter had to work with on his original film and a slew of previous entries to learn from, in the end, Halloween H2O, this designer horror, delivers a tepid thriller and really not much more. I mean, it looks good, it sounds good, but it lacks everything the original film had and the fault is with the script. Williamson's screenplay is serviceable and really not much more. It hardly warrants special excitement for a 20-year surprise. There are no surprises in Halloween H2O. Not a single one. And that's why they had to reinvent the whole thing for Halloween Resurrection. To give you that surprise at the beginning. Oh, it really wasn't Michael that was killed? Wow, what a plot twist. But there really doesn't have to be a surprise. It gets its approval from fans because Curtis returned. And well, wasn't that enough? It has the writer of Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer attached. It has beautiful up-and-comers. The 90s really didn't ask much more from horror, nor did its audience. It's a very easy analogy. Designer jeans were made in foreign countries for under five bucks a pair. Someone bought into the marketing and because certain names were slapped on the ass of the denim, they were the hot thing and folks paid $50 and up for them. And that was also thanks to Brooke Shields, who let you know that she let nothing come between her and her Calvin Kleins. Yet these jeans were made of basic denim material, no different than the jeans that occupied discount store shelves. Consumers got it into their heads that the jeans looked better and made them look better. They bought into the marketing, the branding, and fed an industry. This is the same for 90s designer horror. It really had basic ingredients. It was made rather cheaply, yet it was packaged as stylish. You wanted it. You might even need it. Either way, you had to have it. Williamson was simply one of the best designers out there and sold audiences on his products. So I'll argue he wasn't really Jim Varney or Ernest of horror. He was the Calvin Klein of horror. The horror film as designer cinema will take a new turn in the millennium, going further to see a boutique subgenre emerge. But that's a topic for another time. When you look at the TV series such as Vampire Diaries and those kind of things that came out, you see my point. Look at the advertising for the Vampire Diaries. It has very little to do with horror. I mean, one of the famous ones are the two guys a very androgynous looking, standing with the hot girl in the red outfit. And there's a full moon behind them in some dark sky. I, I guess that's evil. I guess that's to invoke horror. Oh, wait, 
the V in vampire is dripping blood. So you've got Twilight now. And Twilight gave you horror for people who don't like horror. And that was also for the middle-aged moms that could go with their daughters and pretend they're going just to be with their daughters, but they're really there to lust after the young meat that's up on the screen of the boys. Do we still have designer horror today? Yes. And like I said, that's for a podcast for another time because horror will also take another unique turn as we will see coming up. And uh, I'll get to that in a little bit. So anyway, this is Harrison Smith for episode 81 of my cinema podcast, thanking you again for your time. And I look forward to talking to you soon.